Hello, and welcome to Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio. I'm your host, Stuart. Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio discusses interesting and off-center legal topics and aims to make legal discussions more accessible to you. We strive to stimulate interest and provide information while always being entertaining. This week's show is on the changes to Ontario's Succession Law Reform Act. The SLRA primarily governs the operation of wills, dying without a will, and dependent support requirements of a deceased's estate in Ontario. Before we start the show, we would like to say that the views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, host, or of Queen's Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student-run organization. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC Queen's Law student volunteers. The PBSC students are not lawyers, and they are not authorized to provide legal advice. The podcast contains a general discussion of certain legal and law-related issues. If you require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. Today's show was produced by Tony Yin and Mark Dean. I'm your host, Stuart. If you liked this interview, you can find more on Queen's Pro Bono Radio website or on Google Podcasts by searching Queen's Pro Bono Radio. The Succession Law Reform Act was first passed in 1990. It governs much of Ontario's wills and estates law by outlining the formalities for a will. It also deals with the default rules for intestacy, which is the term for when someone dies without a will. Lastly, the SLRA governs issues pertaining to dependent support. On April 19, 2021, Ontario passed the Accelerating Access to Justice Act. In Schedule 9 of the AAJA, Ontario makes quite a few amendments to the Succession Law Reform Act. Many commentators consider these changes to be long overdue, but welcome. However, some still call for a complete statute overhaul, as other Canadian jurisdictions, like Alberta, have done. A few of the changes originated during the pandemic, during lockdowns, and required social distancing. Ontario had to act quickly to allow for wills to be witnessed digitally through the use of audiovisual technology, like webcams. To allow for this divergence from the normal practice of witnessing wills in person, Ontario updated the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. This change lives on in the new Section 4 of the Succession Law Reform Act. Section 4 will continue to allow for people to witness wills by using audio-visual technology. This change has some potentially profound implications, which we shall explore with our guest. Some other changes to the Succession Law Reform Act are that a will is no longer automatically revoked upon marriage. Previously, If someone were to get married, their will was revoked unless it had been made in contemplation of marriage. This rule meant that people had to indicate 
in their will, they were thinking about marriage while writing it, or potentially have their will revoked. In addition to being able to keep one's will after marriage, Ontario added a new definition to the term separated in the wills and estates context. Now, parties can be considered separated for the purposes of estate distribution, even if they are still legally married. As well, Ontario is now considered a substantial compliance jurisdiction. This means courts have discretion when confronted with wills which were not properly completed in accordance with all the rules or formalities set out in the SLRA. Previously, Ontario was considered to be a strict compliance jurisdiction. Judges had little discretion to grant a will that had not been properly executed, even if it represented the deceased's intentions. Now, judges have much more flexibility to give effect to wills that lacked compliance with the rules so long as they represent the deceased's intentions. However, regardless of compliance with rules, wills must still be in writing and cannot be in complete electronic form. Joining us now is Professor David Friedman. He is currently an Associate Professor of Law at Queen's University. Professor Friedman is also a practicing lawyer as counsel at Wagner Sidlowski LLP in Toronto. His primary practice areas are trusts and estates litigation. These areas led him to found Canada's first elder law legal aid clinic located at Queen's University. Professor Friedman, thank you so much for joining us today on Pro Bono Radio. I was hoping to learn a little bit more about the changes to Ontario's Succession Law Reform Act. Okay. And I was wondering if I can ask you a few questions concerning the changes, maybe some public policy reasons why the changes were put in place certainly, and, certainly. and their effects. Awesome. So many of Canada's other provinces have done a complete statute overhaul, and Ontario has changed a few sections, but they've kept most of the statute pretty much intact. Do you have any insights into why they haven't done a complete statute overhaul? Well, let's break it up and break it into two parts. I think that in some of the other provinces that have done a comprehensive review of both the succession law regime and the substitute decision-making regime in those provinces, Ontario law has been ahead in terms of reform. And so with, for, in some respects, some of the other provinces are catching up to where Ontario is rather than going beyond, beyond Ontario. But some provinces you know, have, have gone ahead, uh, ahead of us w with respect to some uh, individual issues. I think that the legal culture in Ontario is a little bit more conservative in, in, in some ways, and that may just reflect the larger population and a fear that changing too much too fast will result in litigation and will overtax the, the justice system. You know, at the same time, I, I do think that Ontario law is, in, is due for comprehensive reform, probably more to do with the administration of estates and substitute decision-making than the, the statute and the Succession Law Reform Act as a whole. But we're, I think we're, we'll probably get there in the next three to five years. And do you think most of these potential changes are due to public policy reasons and overall changes in society, which would indicate a need to potentially change the succession law format? I, I think that there, there 
definitely are some changes that are reflective of changes in public policy and society. And, 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 and that, I would say, is particularly bound up with the treatment of spousal rights and, and marriages and, you know, rights of inheritance after when a person passes. So that's, that's, you know, one part of it. The other is, I think, that the pressure to use technology has become a a little a little stronger in the last number of years and so that that accounts to some extent as well that makes sense and staying on that technology topic now section 4 of the SLRA will allow people to witness wills using the aid of audiovisual technology as a a state's practitioner, what kind of changes do you think this will have in practice? Well, well, this this change has come about primarily because of COVID. And what it's allowed for is uh, remote signing and witnessing of wills involving a member of the law society. So where a person makes a will and their lawyer is supervising the execution of the will, then the new rules will allow you know the, the, the will to be witnessed and be considered to be valid. I think that there's a real uh, a, a question that we've been dealing with over the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years, and that is to what extent electronic wills will be part of uh, the future. And, and that's been something that has been debated across uh, a number of jurisdictions. I, I don't know to what extent the, the technology is mature enough for that yet, but I think that we're moving in that direction. Certainly, there is confidence in technology for the formation and the execution of contracts, which is in place. I th- I don't know what the reluctance is in terms of wills, but I have. You know, I mean, that's not something I, I've I, I've studied at length. My guess is is that there's just a lingering fear that if we don't get things exactly right, we're going to have to clean up a, a huge mess. So we're making you know inroads in that respect, but I don't think that we're we're quite there yet. So maybe it's possible with the ease of technology, it would just make it a little bit too easy potentially and there might be mistakes along the way there might be mistakes along the way or there may be unforeseen complications that arise i mean the thing is will making is really important for for most people i mean it's one of the most important things that they're going to do in terms of planning for the uh, during their lifetimes and the specter of getting it wrong and having to go into court for to deal with the the problem in litigation is really expensive proceedings for average people. And I think that in that respect, going slow is not a a bad thing. I mean, this is an area of law that has traditionally prized certainty in terms of the rules so that people can plan effectively and have some confidence that their plans will will be adequate. And any kind of uncertainty tends to drive a state planners a little bit around the twist. And I think that that's where that sort of cultural conservatism comes into play. And we're we're proceeding well, we're just proceeding slowly. Some other of the changes are that now with Section 15A being removed from the SLRA, wills are no longer revoked upon marriage, which is in some respects a pretty big change. Do you think this will have a major impact on those planning their estate and what should they be maybe be aware of? Well, it's going to have to, it's going to have a a major impact on, on people planning their estates. There's two, two parts of this. One is that marriage no longer revokes a will, but the other is that separation terminates inheritance rights. And the reason that we've had these provisions in place has been that it's been based on what we anticipate most people want. We've said traditionally when people are married, 
they obligate themselves to their partner in terms of support. So there's an obligation of financial support that arises in the Family Law Act in respect of marriage. And what we wanted to do is say that if it's the expectation that most people who marry fundamentally change their testamentary intentions or what we think their testamentary intentions are, the law has essentially taken our presumptions and put them into the statute and said that when people marry, they, we, we're going to assume that they want their spouse to acquire intestacy rights under the statute so that if they don't make a will, then their spouse will have rights of inheritance after they die. And I think one issue that's going to arise is, we'll see whether this is right or not, is whether the presumptions that we're now taking in the law actually match what people want, right? Because it, it seems to be less that we're basing the law on what we think most people would want to have happen in a, in a situation. And instead, we are concerned that there may be some problems that arise. And in respect of the replication of wills on marriage, the primary problem that I think has animated the latest reforms is concerns about what are called sometimes predatory marriages, where there is a marriage between a person and their partner, and where that partner lacks mental capacity to make a new will, but has sufficient capacity to enter into a marriage, meaning that the caregiver who marries his or her patient will have inheritance rights where that the married partner won't be able to change their will. And to what extent that's a real problem, I don't know. I mean, there have been some notorious cases of caregiver marriages where the family has been shocked to find out that in the last dying days, dad married his nurse, and now the nurse is going to inherit everything and the family is going to get nothing. Whether that's a prevalent problem or not, I don't know. And I think that we'll find out in the next few years as to whether what we think people want is actually what they do want. I think it's easier to square the separation and the termination of inheritance rights, because I think it's pretty understandable that upon separation, people don't want to have their separated spouse necessarily uh, inherit their estate, which only, you know, it says that if we terminate inheritance rights, we're just saying that people should expect the family law act model to kick in and then for their uh, property division questions that have to be dealt with as a consequence of the separation are going to have to be dealt with in terms of the administration of the estate. So it makes a bit more sense. We'll see. You know, I, I, I don't know how they the government came about with this specific proposal. There were, I mean, there were certainly, or this specific piece of legislation, there were a lot of proposals that were made, some uh, highlighting the problems in caregiver marriages, some, some not. I, I don't mean to avoid the question altogether, but, you know, I just don't know what statistics might be out there that we don't have access to, but the government does. My guess is it's that Actually, it wasn't based on any statistical analysis, but it was based just on the reports of uh, in the press and the reports by some uh, members of the bar that this was a, a, a problem. We'll see. True. You do make a very good point, though. It's an easier assumption to make that separation would be the intentions of the parties and that you wouldn't want separated spouses to potentially inherit under intestacy versus saying that a will should necessarily be revoked upon marriage. That's right. a, a very good point. Do you think that the new definition for what constitutes separation under section 17.4 is broad enough? I think the definition is okay. It incorporates the Family Law Act definition dealing with cohabitational relationships, which is which is pretty good or 
you know, separation agreements or physical things. I think the problem that's going to arise is, you know, normally in uh, matrimonial proceedings, the date of separation can be chosen based on a date where, you know, somebody moved out or there was, you know, something in particular happened. And that only becomes really relevant for the purposes of valuing property that are, that's then going to be divided. And there's two people that are around and they can agree as between themselves when the separation date was. And if they can't do that, they can put it for in front of a judge and a, a judge can, can make that determination. The laws of the universe being as they are, it's going to be very hard to get the deceased partner to give their view as to when the separation took place, if a separation took place at all. So unfortunately, I think one thing that is probably going to happen, and this is less the language of the statute and more a question of evidence, is I think there's going to be litigation in the context of estates as to whether there was a separation, and if so, when that separation took place. And and that th those battles are going to be between the separated spouse and you know other family members that expected to inherit. And in my little pocket of the world, the oldest problem, you know, most common, most problematic scenario is children of the second marriage against the spouse of the first marriage. This is just going to add to that. And so now we can have children of the first marriage against the second spouse uh, in terms of the separation, separation date. So I think that what's going to have to happen is that family law lawyers are going to be a little bit more active in this area in terms of documenting separation and, and ensuring that that they can that there's no questions as to when the separation took place and that a separation took place to ensure that there's not litigation after one of the spouses dies. So I, I don't know if I'm being a, a little bit too pessimistic, but I kind of think that the people that are involved in the state litigation are not too unhappy with these uh, changes to, to the rules. People that are involved in estate planning, I think are gonna have to be a little bit more careful. That makes sense. It does seem like it's adding another potential issue on which people could, could live. If it makes jobs for lawyers, it's not such a bad thing. Oh, not <laughs> I'm, at kidding. All. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> another change is Ontario is now moving to be a substantial compliance jurisdiction instead of a strict compliance jurisdiction. Right. Is there much impact on people writing their wills aside from basically trying to adhere to the formalities to the best of their ability? So the traditionally Ontario was what we called a strict compliance jurisdiction. And what that meant was that a person had to sign a will either uh, in their own handwriting without witnesses or a typed will in front of witnesses or acknowledge their signature in front of witnesses and the witnesses had to sign. And we were very strict in how we approach the validity of wills. And so if you strictly didn't meet all of the requirements, the will would be invalid. And now we have a provision that says that a court can say that notwithstanding the fact that there's some uh, problems in respect of either witnesses attesting that they saw the signature or deceased having signed the will, the court can make a declaration that it's valid. And I have to say that I personally find this one a little bit more problematic. And it's a hard question because on the one hand, you want to have access to legal forms, like access to justice. You want people to be able to make wills. But on the other hand, I mean, estate litigation is quite problematic and can deplete resources really quickly. So the advantage of a strict compliance jurisdiction is at the very least you knew that litigation wouldn't arise in some cases. And if there, if the lawyer that had been in charge of ex, uh, supervising the execution of the will was at fault, you could sue him or her for negligence. And that was thought to be adequate. Now, I 
I do wonder whether we're going to be looking at a lot more litigation in respect of what constitutes a valid will or not. And it does make me a bit nervous because people with deeper pockets have a real advantage in litigation in terms of the ability to retain counsel, the ability to fund litigation. And, you know, this is an area of law where we generally really try to keep nuisance lawsuits out of the picture. You know, it's one thing for an insurance company to deal with insurance law or nuisance lawsuits, let's say in terms of automobile insurance or something like that. It's another thing for, you know, ordinary people to have to fund litigation over a will challenge. So, you know, are we striking the balance right? I don't know. I'm quite nervous about this change. I'm quite nervous that we're going to see a lot more nuisance litigation. Those jurisdictions that have been substantial compliance have developed doctrine to try to control that. And I think that's what our courts are going to do. But this was uh, an element of reform that I don't think got as much public attention as it deserved to get. And and I don't mean members of the public coming in and and, and talking to the committees in, in the legislature, but consumers' rights groups, people that deal with estate planning, not just lawyers, but, you know, certified financial planners, accountants, people like that. I don't know if they're as attuned to these things as they could be. So I don't know how this is going to play out. I think that the first five years, we're going to see a lot of development in the law before it settles down again. And I expect that the Ontario court are not going to take a really broad liberal approach to validating wills where there might be uh, problems in complying with the formalities provisions. I think that there's going to be a judicial concern that we have have rules that are too liberal that we're going to have too many nuisance actions that are brought in respect of the states to compel settlements. So, you know, again, I'm reluctant to to predict what's going to happen, but I have to say that I think that this is an area where those people that are planning their estates really should get some advice. Nobody likes paying lawyers, but with the kinds of forms that are available on the internet and people taking down forms and doing them their wills themselves, it's not just the questions of compliance with formalities that arise. It's really in respect of how people are doing you know, their wills per se. And I have to say that for a lot of people, it is a false economy to do your own will and that it would be much better to retain a lawyer to do that for you. So, you know, I don't want to repeat myself too much other than to say that I think that we're all trying to update the law and how we respond to technological innovation. Whether we want to have greater appetite for people making their own wills or greater encouragement for people to make their own wills is not something that I think is a great idea. That makes sense. And is it possible too that it might be more substantial compliance in name only? It seems like you are alluding to the potential that judges might be wary of granting too much lenience. Yeah, I think it'll be incremental development. I think that the the legislature has made a decision and the courts are going to respect that. But I think that when there are dramatic changes in the law, and I think this is a fairly dramatic change in an area that doesn't see a lot of change, that I think the natural inclination of the courts is going to be to slow it down and to develop the law slowly and carefully. Because again, like this is one of those areas of law that very few probate applications encounter resistance or have to go to court. And most of the time people apply for probate over a will, they have to pay some fees, but it's more or less just an administrative step. Whether this gives rise to more litigation in the context of 
people that are disappointed with what they got under the last made will want to put forward another document which purports to be a will. We'll see. But, you know, my expectation is that human nature being what it is, is that we're going to see an uptick in cases and that the courts are going to have to be really careful about how what attitude they they bring towards this because we don't want the the justice system to be swamped with cases and we don't want people that are beneficiaries of simple estates to suddenly have probate fights on their hands when they can't afford them so we'll see so in conjunction with this change for the definition of separation it might be possible that these new amendments increase the amount of litigation possibly yeah that's uh, that's the great fear in this area of law has there been any talk in your practice or amongst other wills and estates practitioners about this potential for increased litigation? Oh, nothing but. Oh, really? Yeah, no, no. This is, uh, you know, where this is not an area of law that's going to be automated or outsourced or anything like that. It's a very personal area of law, especially on the planning side. And people that are involved in estate planning take, uh, you know, I think uh, some degree of pride in ensuring that the estate plans that they develop and the various elements of the plans are, are going to hold up that they're not going to bring on more into taxation, they're not going to allow for litigation to erupt, and that the testamentary wishes of their clients are going to be respected. And whenever there's a major change, there's going to be litigation that's going to test you know, the boundaries. And we'll see what happens, because we're dealing with a, a big transfer of wealth between generations. And there are problematic cases where, you know, people are used to a certain standard of living and given of all the, you know, economic problems that have been visited upon the economy in the last couple of years. And there's, there's a lot of people that are in need of money and that's going to prompt some degree of litigation over post-mortem transmission of wealth, whether it's through a will or, 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 or something else. And, and yeah, the, the bar is very concerned. So I, I think that there will be closely monitoring um, the situation. And, and if the statute needs revision, uh, my guess is that revisions will be swift. That's a really good point. That's something I hadn't really considered, the idea that there'd been a massive generational shift and there'll be lots of wealth transfer over the next few years. Not to me personally, but yeah, it is. <laughs> there certainly is that if that's going on. <laughs> For sure. That being uh, said, I mean, if anybody wants to send me a check, I'm open to receiving gift. <laughs> there you go. We can add your email address at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding before I get myself fired. Some commentators had suggested that with removing section 16, which previously allowed for wills revoked upon marriages to apply to be reinstated. So people who had their wills revoked could then apply with this section to have them reinstated by a court. A commentator had suggested that wills previously revoked due to marriage might be reinstated with these updates. Is that at all a possibility? I don't really... I don't really see that happening. I mean, the, the, the statute applies to deaths after January 1st of, of this year. That section in the uh, statute that dealt with the revoked will being allowed to operate with the consent of the spouse, I, I don't know how often that was invoked. I mean, if the spouse is willing to consent to limiting his or her inheritance rights, you would think that the matter would settle if there was a dispute rather than going to court. And there, there would either be just generosity by the by the spouse who's gonna who would say, well, I'm entitled to, you know, X dollars out of the estate and I'm going to, you know, limit myself to whatever is in the will because that's what we we agreed, or there there's some other interest that's going on. I don't really see that as being something that that's of great concern because I don't think it really was a, an issue before. You know, it's not it's not like a will has become revived 
in some faulty process. Maybe that's not, not the, actually not the point, the best way to explain the point. I think that I don't see that particular issue as being something that will not be adequately dealt with informally. I just, I, I, I can't see that being a, a major issue to tell you the truth. So with respect to the commentators that uh, voice that opinion, not having read those comments, I, I, I can't say very much, but I, I don't think that that's a major concern of mine anyways. That's fair. That's kind of what I thought. I wouldn't think that the legislature would make such a big change through an inference. No, I don't think so. I, I think the big thing is, is, you know, the treatment of marriage generally. That's a huge development. And the move to uh, substantial compliance is also a huge development. Well, you know, that, that the, the move to substantial compliance, that's more easily controlled by the courts. How this plays out in terms of spousal rights rights and whether it gives rise to, you know, unintended consequences that are problematic. That's a more serious concern. Because at the end of the day, we don't want people to have to go to court to be able to determine issues that could be determined otherwise. And I'm thinking more now of blended families. And I think that a, a lot of people are, are going to be urged to make domestic agreements where, as before, they didn't, just to deal with these financial issues and ensure that after one person passes, that there isn't a misunderstanding or there isn't, you know, the, the various family members are not cross purposes and it ends up in, in, in court and, and, and be put before a judge. So that, I think, is a, 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 a bigger thing to worry about. Mm-hmm. Ideally, all these issues are dealt with in someone's estate plan rather than going for litigation. Yeah, you know, ideally. Uh, and that's why I say I think that it, the, there, there's, there's a real concern about uh, homemade wills and using wills taken off the internet that are designed for another jurisdiction. I mean, that's such a bad idea. You know, the, for the sake of a few hundred bucks on, uh, on a lawyer's fee to draft a will, you know, relying on, you know, self-help could cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to rectify it or to not to find, you know, people don't know the tax laws and, and wouldn't necessarily know uh, about the settlement of a spousal trust and a will that can defer capital gains taxation to the end of the life of the spouse rather than, you know, having to be met um, at the one uh, when, when a person dies. Things like that are, are just lost opportunities for people. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a concern. Definitely. Makes sense. It, it's worth it to spend a little bit of extra money on the lawyer and get it right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. Professor Feedman, thank you so much for speaking with Pro Bono Students Radio. Before we end the show, we would like to say that the views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producer, host, or of Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student-run organization. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC Queen's Law student volunteers. PBSC students are not lawyers, and they are not authorized to provide legal advice. The podcast contains a general discussion of certain legal and law-related issues, and as always, if you require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. Professor Friedman, Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day. We really appreciate discussing the updates to Ontario's Succession Law Reform Act with you. We enjoyed your insights and valued hearing about your practice experience. My great pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you again for joining Pro Bono Radio 